Okay. Uh, if you haven't been with us two weeks before, what we've done is we have explained the four traditional... Taurus's view is we're in the presence of it happening now. The preterist view is uh, it's already happened. It's been fulfilled uh, by and through uh, the church that existed at the time scripture was being written or shortly thereafter. And then the futurist view is it hasn't happened, but it's going to happen, and we're waiting for it to culminate and happen. There's also the what the heck is this view, which we introduced to you last week. And uh, that view is, Luther uh, said he didn't believe that the book uh, should be in scripture. And uh, there is ideas based off uh, examination of the handwriting styles that John, uh, the beloved, did not write it. And, and so there is a view that maybe it shouldn't have made its way into the canon. So we're going to, as we read through, we're gonna appeal to these different views when we get to our verse by verse, and then we're gonna kinda keep a scorecard of uh, which view is kind of winning. We'll put it that way. Uh, just know that the goal is, as we read, do you think this book should be in, and you might say, that is really ballsy to say, should this book be in the Bible? But that is not a new idea. And it took a long time for the church and believers in the church at varying arguments to agree it should be. And if it should be, should we look at it through the idealist view, the historicist view, the preterist view, or the futurist view? So, okay. Uh, I'll try not to mention this again, but I do wonder sometimes about the value of this endeavor that we're doing, simply because I cannot take it lightly. I can't sit down and just present to you something that's going to you know, give you answers. It's impossible for me to do that with anything. So um, I pray that this will be of benefit. I've been assured that this is gonna bear fruit, so on we go. One of the key elements before we get to verse by verse next week is thriving debates about uh, the dating of the book of Revelation. When was it written, okay? And this is especially uh, true when you're talking about the preterist view, that everything's been fulfilled, versus the futurist view, that we are waiting for it to happen. So uh, simply put, preterists argue for a pre-70 AD date that it was written before that time, uh, and futurists hold that it was written at a date beyond 70 AD, between 90 and 95 AD. That's simply put the two different positions. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for a later dating of the book of Revelation. First, there's a man named Irenaeus, 
And he wrote a book against, not a book, but he wrote something called Against Heresies. This is way back in the early church. And he said that John wrote Revelation at the end of Emperor Dom, Domi, Domitian, the end of Domitian's reign, which ended in 96 AD. That statement by Arrhenius sets the book at that dating, okay? Now, Irenaeus was a disciple of a man named Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Revelator. So we have a connection to him saying that, and there's, there's a connection there between the men. He, Irenaeus, had a connection to Polycarp, who was a contemporary of John the Beloved, and so this is how that tradition was established. Secondly, the conditions of the seven churches in Revelation, we're going to get to that in chapters 2 and 3, appear to describe a second-generation church, not a first-generational church uh, that would have been spoken of pre-70 AD. For example, the church at Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It's charged, when we get to those passages, with abandoning its first love and was warned against the Nicolaitan, however you say it, heresy. I'll get to how you say it when we get to it. If John had written Revelation A.D. in 65, like the preterists say, it would have overlapped with Paul's writing of the book of Revel, uh, with his epistles to Ephesians. All right? But Paul, in his epistle to the Ephesians, makes no mention that the Ephesians have lost their first love or there's a threat by the Nicolaitans uh, in his epistles. That's really odd for Paul to be writing a letter to the uh, uh, Ephesians and not say anything, but if it was written prior to 70 AD, John quoting Jesus who said, listen, you've lost your first love and you're in danger of being threatened by this heresy. So that's a real problem in the mind of the futurists toward the preterist view. Ephesus was Paul's headquarters for three years. Also, the church of Smyrna didn't exist during Paul's ministry. Uh, uh, and as recorded by Polycarp, who was the first bishop of that city. So, and then Laodicea, which is talked about in chapter 3 of Revelation, is rebuked in Revelation for being um, lukewarm and wealthy, rich, okay? It's rebuked for that. However, in his letter to the Colossians, Paul commends the church at Laodicea three times. So that brings a problem to the preterist view of it being written at that time. The thought that it would likely take three, more than three years for the church to go from Paul not saying anything for them to be lukewarm and rich, that seems to be untenable to a futurist. And they say the preterist position doesn't make sense that way. Uh, also, an earthquake in AD 61 left the city of Laodicea in ruins. Okay? So for Jesus in his revelation to John to say that you have abandoned your first, I mean, that you are rich, that doesn't make much sense if the city was leveled in 61 for suddenly for it to be rich, okay? So uh, we will cover the preterist response to these issues when we get to the chapters uh, two and three that discuss the churches themselves. So there are the two main reasons 
why the preterist view of it being written pre-70 AD are discounted by the futurists. Um, uh, if this book is to be seen in the light of either the historicists or the idealists, these items really don't seem to matter. Because the historicist believes we are, in, we are witnessing the unfolding of this, and the idealist says there's no material manifestation of these things anyway, so the date of the book isn't as important to those two views. Okay, so preterists who favor the 70 AD pose some objections to the date of 90, 95 AD. Now I'm coming back and showing. Uh, for instance, preterists say, why doesn't John mention the fall of the temple in this revelation, 90, 90, 95 AD, which happened in 70 AD. That was such a momentous event, million plus killed, the temples wiped out. Why does not, why does not get any mention at all? The futurists, just to put it to you right now, say, well, John wrote about future things and he had no desire to write about things of the past. The destruction of Jerusalem was 25 years past when he wrote this. So therefore, there was no reason for him to mention that, that falling of the temple and all that went with it. Um, they also say that John wrote to a Gentile audience in Asia Minor, which was far removed from Jerusalem. And so, but preterists point out the fact that the temple is mentioned actually in chapter 11 of the book. So the futurists respond that though John mentions the temple in Revelation chapter 11, this does not mean it exists at the time of his writing it. I'm giving you a lot of kind of detached things right at the beginning here. So, uh, and what a futurist would say is, listen, before the temple uh, was up and going, I mean, after the, the second raising of the temple was up and going in Daniel 9 and Ezekiel 40, uh, both prophets described the temple, but it wasn't in existence then. So they say it's very easy for John to have mentioned a temple in Revelation, but not have been talking about a temple that was actually in existence. Preterists then ask, did Jesus mean in Matthew 24, 34, when he said this generation will certainly not pass until all these things have happened? Preterists say, what did he mean when he said that? The common futurist response is that Jesus was saying that in the future, there will be a generation that he's speaking of, that when all these things start happening that he's described, that, that generation won't pass until they've all been fulfilled. That's how a futurist would understand that passage in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. So in other words, uh, the generation living at the time when these things are fulfilled, that is what he says when Jesus said, this generation will not pass. Uh, the preterist view, you know this, most of you who've come here, but quickly goes something like this. If the books of the Bible were truly and primarily written to believers of that day, like they, they are addressed to them, to the seven churches, to the believers at uh, Ephesus, to Coloss, then all of them, including Everything in the New Testament had to have been written before the destruction of Jerusalem. That's because if they were written after 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, they were obviously written to believers who were around after God poured his judgment down upon that city. 
And so it wasn't just all those epistles weren't just talking about that destruction of the nation of Israel and all that it entailed, but that the Bible and John the Revelator was talking about things that are going to happen to us later. That's why there's a big debate on was it written before 70 AD and why futurists insist primarily it had to have been written in 95 and it's just vital for a preterist to believe that it was written before 70 AD. As an aside, I just suggest that the Bible was primarily, and I don't pull this out of thin air, that's, this is how everybody who wrote the New Testament, this is what they said. They said, this is to the believers at. So I don't think we can escape from the fact that the Bible was not primarily written to anyone but the believers of that day and age, including Revelation, because Jesus himself says to the seven churches, uh, which are at, unless you take the his historist view and say that's emblematic of a period of time, and it doesn't mean the actual seven churches. That's how why the historist view has sort of come into play and had popularity at one time. I would also add that in light of the very Jewish language that the book is written in, that it seems to have been dedicated to the people of that time. They understood that language, and it depicts the wrapping up of that age. Obviously, my view is debated by many smart people, but I've told you when we first started, the background's gonna kind of handicap me because I have a view, a preterist view of, the, of Revelation, and so that will handicap me to really kind of objectively share with you what the other views are without sort of throwing in my, and you can't help it, that's how it works. So you're gonna have to rely on your own prejudices to get around my prejudices when it comes to understanding the book. Not a hill to die on, after all. Uh, all of what we believe in terms of dating or even the views has nothing to do with the gospel, with Christ Jesus coming, living, dying, resurrecting, and the apostles seeing that. It's a minor hill, it really is, because I'll tell you something, if it's proven today uh, that the preterist view is a lie and the futurist view is certain, I will continue to be a Christian as I am a Christian now. And I'm sure fut if futurism is proven wrong today, I'm sure that most futurist believers will continue to be the Christians they are now. So it's not, people make it a hill to die on and they call heresy like crazy, but it's just not a heretical stance in my opinion. However, if the preterist view is correct, it goes such a long way in helping prove to Christians today that our Christianity is spiritually based. It is not materially lived out. It is a spiritual relationship between the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ, who brings us to the Father. And it is a spiritual relationship, not a brick and mortar institution, none of all, all that. And it's a new way of living rather than through what has been attempted in the past by shakeable brick and mortar uh, institutions and ecclesiastical power plays to keep religion and the masses in, in mind. Admittedly, and this is important, if the book of Revelation was composed after the destruction of Jerusalem, it proves John was writing instructions to a church that existed after Jesus' judgment fell. And if this is the case, then preterism is a complete fail. So the dating is important from a preterist view to know when and if. 
the dating of the book is not too relevant, as I said, to the futurist view even. They can, it was written before or to the uh, uh, idealist or historist. So additionally, if the preterist view is errant on date, then we are today still very much a part of a material church and an objective church and the approach many churches take to its content and the rest of uh, the Bible ought to be taken very seriously. So if the preterist view is incorrect, then um, Jesus is coming back to get his church. And the contents of the Bible are vitally important to him getting his bride when the time comes. That means ecclesiastical orders established in Timothy, first and second. It means all the nuances of what the New Testament apostles taught in the apostolic church are applicable. It means everything should be lived. That includes women shutting their mouth in church. I'm sorry, but that's what it means. It mean, look, at if I find out preterism's a lie, no woman speaking in this, in this place. You're not, and widows are gonna prove that they are widows indeed because that's what the book says. I wanna go by what the book says. And it says this is to happen and that. Divorce, if you're divorced, bye-bye fathead. You marry somebody else and you're divorced, you're in serious trouble here at campus if the preterist view is false because the Bible is clear of what the directives were at that time for those people in that day and age. Now, so it's, it's serious, and that's why, you know, I, I, I don't take this lightly. I can't just sit down and just try to teach something to appease you because it's very important to how you live the Christian life. And if you want to be true and seek God in spirit and truth, you're going to want to understand what is right and what is wrong and what is applicable to us in that book. And so uh, we should have a board, we, not a board, but we should have elders. There should be church discipline. Um, the word needs to be taken literally. And uh, this is really serious. I would be guilty of producing terrible, horrible, no good, very bad faith because I'm saying it's done. And I'm saying all the brick and mortar appeals, tithing and dress codes and orders and in this structure and that's are done. It's just, it's, in fact, it's against the word. But if I'm wrong, uh, trouble. The other side of the coin is if the preterist view is correct, then the majority of the Christian approaches are nonsense. Um, they're, they're abusive. They're a misapplication of the written word. And millions upon millions, billions probably, have lived their lives and died overwhelmed with futile fears of an event that has already occurred. So this is really important, and it's one of the reasons why I agreed, much to the behest of one person, <laughs> Uh, why I said, okay, let's keep going. Let's just keep going with this. Because last week I was just ready to embrace the what the heck is this approach and say, let's get to something that's gonna uplift us. But I think it will. So let's take our time and look at the dating of Revelation today. Admittedly, the dating of the all New Testament books, it's debatable. So they're, 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 they're just opinions, really. And I would suggest that we don't listen to what others have said, what I, my opinion is, but... Let's look at, one, the content of the New Testament books, what is said in them, the context, who it was said to, when it was said, 
and the secular history surrounding what was said to determine what the date is of this book. So we're going to use the internal evidence of the book, not the external quote from Irenaeus, but the internal evidence to prove or try to prove when the date was. Far more imposing and important to the dating of the book of Revelation than just going by tradition or this guy says, or but he says, whoever has the better uh, educational pedigree, but he says, oh, you know, so let's get away from that. So to the 95 AD, this was a year there was a man named Domitian, <laughs> Caesar. He reigned at that time. This late dating was determined by following a statement, as I said, from Irenaeus, okay? And that was 195 AD. So Irenaeus made a statement on about that's used about when the book was written at 195 AD, 100 years after it was supposed to have been written, okay? And that quote was brought to life by a man named Eusebius in 395 AD. We'll give him 350. So then uh, double that almost, you have Eusebius going back, seeing that Irenaeus wrote this quote in 195 and saying, this is why we have the date of 90 to 95 AD of Revelation, all right? The futurist argument for 95 dating rarely admits, it, does, it rarely admits that this single quote is the major pillar to support the dating of the book of Revelation at 90 to 95 AD. Uh, two men, Eusebius, 325, 350, 325, I said 350, was quoting Irenaeus, 195, who lived 123 years earlier. And here is Eusebius's quote on the board. This is it. He wrote in 325, we will not, however, incur the risk of pronouncing positively as to the name of Antichrist. So the topic is, we are not going to try to name who the Antichrist is. So you can see that there, he had a view of maybe this is a futurist book and we have an Antichrist that's supposed to come up now. We're not going to go to naming him, all right? Eusebius writes, For if it were necessary that his name should be revealed in this present time, it would have been announced by him who beheld the apocalyptic vision. The quote goes on. He says, I didn't write it because it wasn't room. For that was seen no very long time since, but almost in our day, toward the end of Domitian's reign. Okay, that, that little reference, toward the end of Domitian's reign, is what says, okay, Eusebius, 325, quoting Irenaeus, 195, who is quoting Polycarp, who knew John, wrote that in church history, and that is the substance for the, 390, uh, the 95, 90-95. To add fuel to the disputable nature of this quote, we have to note that Irenaeus did not witness what he actually wrote about or quoted. So Eusebius is quoting Irenaeus, but Irenaeus isn't the one who, this is hearsay upon hearsay. It was Irenaeus who wrote this about Polycarp, who was a friend of his, who apparently knew John the Revelator. So, and then we're also not sure what the it is. For if it were necessary that his name should be revealed, 
there's a question about what the it is. The name of the Antichrist, the visions itself in the Greek, it's not as simple as the English if it was referring to John. So the single statement which comes to us by three separate people separated by three centuries is at best hearsay and has been obfuscated by time and interpretation. Uh, but it is this statement alone, except for those earlier facts I gave about the second generational churches seeming to be described, and those are valid points, I have to admit. Those are valid, that those are the two things that say, yeah, we think Revelation was penned 90, 95 AD. So I wanna go to the internal evidences that say 70 AD, pre-70 AD, okay? Take notes, they're good. They're, they're really, really good and they're not original to me. So I just researched it out. Point number one, uh, I'm gonna name these on the board. So point number one, we are going to call John's age. You think, well, why is that important, John's age to the book, the date of the book of Revelation? In Revelation 10, 11, we read that John the one who wrote the revelation, apparently, quote, must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Got that? It's in the revelation. John must prophesy again to many nations, peoples, tongues, and kings. The idealist or historist passage, it doesn't matter. Uh, but if revelation was written in 95 AD, John would have been over 90 years of age, okay? He's, he's reporting the revelation, and in it it says he now needs to go, and he will prophesy before many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. In that day and age, 90 was old, old in our day and age, traveling brutal, okay? So not that God couldn't have supported John in this, he could have, and he could have filled him with the Holy Spirit, and he could have done this. All of these are not stop dead, we've proven it, but they do amount to some great evidence for a 70 AD, pre-70 AD dating. So with Revelation written 65, 68, whatever, 63 maybe, in those areas, John would have been in his 60s. That's a different story. Now, it, again, it's not perfect, but it's a, it's a different one. Point two, we'll call it the small window. Sorry, we're out of a light over here, Seth. Small window. This is going to help answer what one of the uh, futurist complaints were against the preterist view. Chapter one, verse four, proves that John wrote Revelation to a specific group of churches in Asia. That is known. The importance of this statement can't be overlooked, even though it is by many scholars, because there's only one small window of time in which there were only seven churches in Asia, and that was in the early part of the 60s AD, okay? The Apostle Paul, if we look at the epistles, he established nine churches, all right, in that area, only seven are addressed in the book of Revelation. The reason for this is that the cities in Colossus and Hierapolis 
and Laodicea were all destroyed by an earthquake around AD 61. Laodicea was rebuilt soon afterward, okay? And, but the other two cities were not, leaving now only seven. This left the seven churches in Asia during five years just prior to the Jewish uh, war and the Roman Jewish war. So that's, that's that window. That window of time tells us, okay, maybe we can look at how did this happen and, and where it could have happened. Of particular importance is the message to the church of Philadelphia, which we're going to read about in Revelation 3, 7 uh, through 13. In verses 10 through 11, Christ told John to inform them that an hour of temptation was about to come upon the world. Now, the Greek is not cosmos there. It's the hour is about to come upon the gi, or it's really the gehe, and the gehe meant the area. So in the revelation itself to the church at Philadelphia, John says that Christ said the hour of temptation was about, and that meant very soon come upon the entire area. Translated world here, and that's why futurists will say, ah, we can apply this to the whole world. But in the Greek, it's not world. It's Gehe area, okay? Christ then told them that he was coming quickly and they should hold fast. So we have a problem. If that book was written and delivered to the seven churches, they sit down and they read, ah, Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, we're in Philadelphia. He's coming quickly. We should hold fast. We don't need to believe him. It's for another time. No problem at all, right? This reason, the reason this is important, besides the fact that it was directed to an actual church in the first century, is that the first persecution of Christians took place under Nero in 64 AD. That gives us a direct time when Revelation had to have been written because Jesus warns them it's about to happen. Point number three. Uh, I wrote them on a napkin here. Temple's still standing. Okay, now I already talked about that briefly. Temple standing. And um, here's the thing about that. One of the most compelling proofs that Revelation was written before 70 AD is that in Revelation 11, John is told, go and measure the temple. Now, we realize this is probably spiritually understood and driven, so it didn't have to materially be there. But if it wasn't, it seems like John would have said, which one? I said unto the angel, ask the Lord, what hath happened to the, which temple should I me uh, measure? Because the one that you want me to measure has disappeared. So we might have to read that in the idealist way that it was not literal. But if you're going to read scripture for scripture, and that can be problematic with Revelation, it says, and there was given to me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. Now to a Jew like John, there's only one temple of God, especially one tangible enough for, for him to measure, and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles for the holy city shall they tread underfoot 40 and two months. So he tells him right there, go and measure it and do this and do that. But it's, 
don't do this for the Gentile part and the whole, in the holy city measure this because the Gentiles are gonna tread this underfoot. They're in, in chapter 11. So if it's already been tread underfoot, what is that? The historicists would, the historicists would say, that's there because it's telling us the history of what occurred. There's their answer for it. So I'm just trying to cover all bases to keep it flowing. How do we know this was not the temple of the first century and not some future temple? Because that's how the futurists say. Well, there's a future temple that John was measuring, okay? First, there is not one passage in the Bible that speaks of a rebuilt Jewish temple. I've heard all the arguments and all the things. There's not a passage that says it's, it's gonna be rebuilt. All the fanciful thinking of the futurists that they've got the red heifer and they're gathering money to rebuild and that it's gonna happen in the future and the Antichrist is gonna come and all. all of, none of that is biblically supported that there will be a Jewish temple rebuilt, okay? Uh, nevertheless, this passage is really familiar to the construction of Luke 21, okay, where Jesus describes the end of his age, the end of the age of the Jew. This is what it says, Jesus says in Luke 21. And when you shall see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. That's like des abomination of desolation. This is how Luke is putting it. Jesus says, then let them which are in Judea, again, localized geographical desolation there, not worldwide, flee to the mountains, and let them that are in the midst of it depart out, and let, the, them, let, let not them that are in the countries enter here in two, or these be the days of vengeance, that all things which written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that get suck in those days. For them there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, Jesus describing what happened in Jerusalem. And they shall be led away captive unto all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's Jesus describing when they asked him on the Olivet uh, Mount, what are, the, what are the signs? What's this going to happen? He tells them right there, that's Luke's account, not Matthew's. And he says, it's going to be Jerusalem trodden down by who the Gentiles? Who were the Gentiles? The Romans. That's right there. Notice that Jesus told the disciples that they would see this event. Okay? The apostles had asked him about that temple. Jesus told them it would be destroyed within their generation, uh, and that generation would not pass away until all those things were fulfilled. Now, notice again what Jesus said in verse 24 of Luke. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles. This is exactly what Christ said in Revelation chapter 11, which we'll get to. Jerusalem will be trodden down. So we know it's futuristic in Jerusalem's destruction, so we know it had to have happened before 70 AD. Since the disciples' generation has long since passed away, Revelation was written to the nations before Jerusalem was trampled. I mean, there's a really great internal evidence. Point number four. Um, what is point number four? Where's my sheet? Mark, where'd you put it? Ah, oh, here it is. Yeah. Uh, Revelation 1, 7, chapter one, verse seven. If you're with me, look at it. So I'm just gonna put four, Revelation 1, 7. All right? Most scholars of every ilk suggest that Revelation 1, 7 is the theme of the book of Revelation, okay? It says, behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they which were 
and they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. Okay? Now, this verse is very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, verse 30. He says, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes. You see, Jesus in Matthew says, all the tribes. And here we read in Revelation, and all the kindreds of the earth. Okay, the kindreds is the same Greek word as tribes, referring to the 12 tribes, referring to the tribes of Israel, the Jews. Shall all the tribes, same Greek word in Revelation 1, 7, of the earth mourn, and they shall see the man coming in the clouds of heaven and with great power and glory. Now, uh, I know that we're going to get to it when we get to it about the earth. I'll explain that. But standing alone, this is not conclusive by any means. I get it. But based on the language, a case can be made. Since Matthew 24, 30, the verse speaks of the fall of Jerusalem. And Revelation, the verse is very similar, using even the same Greek word for tribes and or um, um, kindreds. Uh, we'll talk more about in a minute. We can suggest that they're speaking of the same thing and therefore had to be written prior to the date. It's not one of the big ones, but it's there. Also notice, though, in Revelation 1-7, John says uh, it refers to those who pierced him. Okay? Although we know the Romans crucified and the Romans pierced him, the apostles accused the Jews of the act in Acts 2 and in Acts 2.23 and 36. In fact, Peter says, they, speaking of the Jews, crucified him. They did. Add in Acts 3.15, 4.10, and 5.30, we read the same thing. Stephen, in Acts 7, 51, 52, calls the Jews murderers. He puts it on their plate. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2.8, speaks of the Jews killing the Lord. That's the quote. He was a Jew himself. So we're talking about the the, the leaders and the fallen Jews who had no light of God in them. And again, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14, 15, Paul speaks of the Jews that killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. So from this, we might further suggest that the book concerns itself with Jews who were utterly dispersed or killed in 70 AD. All right? And when Revelation 1, 7 refers to all the kindreds of the earth, the word in the Greek is phule. And it means the Jewish tribal system. That's how it's used. So he's talking about all the tribal systems of the Jews on earth. Let's identify from scripture who these tribes were. Okay? To do that, and we're going to do this a few times. I'm going to really try to keep it simple. So to do that, we have to keep in mind the simple rule of interpreting scripture. And that is, you know it, scripture interprets scripture. We will not use my ideas. We're going to use scripture to allow us to tell us what it means. Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. It says, And I will pour out upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Okay, there we have a reference in Zechariah talking about Jerusalem who will look to him, he's going to pour out his grace upon them, and they're going to look to him, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, and the land shall mourn, every family apart, and the family of the house of David apart, and their wives apart, and the family of the house of Nathan apart, and the wives apart, and the family of the house of Levi apart, and the wives apart, and the family of Shammai apart, and their wives apart, all the families that remain, every family apart, and their wives apart. So 
This is foundational to the statement that John makes in Revelation 1-7. Every eye shall see him, and they which pierced him, and all the kindreds of the earth or the land shall wail because of him. Zechariah promised it. This is what it was about, and this was who it was to. It does not have anything to do with us having crucified him by our sin and this future coming down upon us that we're going to experience. It's to the house of Israel. So, uh... Zechariah was saying that the tribes of the land would mourn for him whom they had pierced. Who are those tribes? The inhabitants of Jerusalem. Not the world or cosmos, uh, but in some future date. And from these things and more, we can see that one of the main reasons the revelation to the seven churches was to reveal, revelation, reveal Jesus to the nation of Israel, all the nations ends of the earth, of the Gi, of that area, uh, Jesus the Christ, reveal Jesus to them. And this is uh, the final, this place of this final destruction would be upon those who had pierced him, which is who the book was written to. They would suffer uh, the wrath and or the salvation that he offered them. So uh, this is not one bit of a revelation to the Jews today or the Jewish nation today because we know from Paul to the Gentiles that there's no difference between Jew or Greek, male or female, black or white. He didn't say black or white. Uh, bond or free. He, it, there's no difference now. We are all one in Christ. So to set, set the Jews out and say they are still the chosen people, all that was done. It doesn't mean they're not chosen in the sense of being people. They are. There's no uh, anti-Semitism here. That's often thrown at people who are preterists. Absolutely not. But I don't love a Jew or respect a Jew any more than I respect a bum on the street or a prince of, of, of a country. We are all the same in Christ Jesus. To continue on this idea that we are still different in God's No way. There's no way. Point number five. The woman. This one is a little heavy, and then they lighten up after that. Uh, Revelation chapters 17 and 18 speaks of a woman. John wrote that he saw, quote, a woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, the woman had a name written on her forehead. Mystery, comma, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And when we get to it, we'll probably spend four years trying to figure out what that was. But listen, the angel said that the woman was a poetic symbol of that great city. That is what she was a symbol of, a poetic symbol of that great city. Chapter 17, verse 18, if you're taking notes. In whom was found, that great city, in whom was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. That great city. Then John wrote, quote, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and you holy prophets and apostles, apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Thus, with violence shall that great city Babylon... Be thrown down and shall be no more at all. Okay? So, who was this woman? She was that great city. Now of Babylon. It's written in her forehead. Babylon? Well, that certainly couldn't be talking about Jerusalem, could it? 
John goes on and he says in chapter 11, verse 8, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called, stay with me, Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Okay? So, where also our Lord was crucified. So here John calls Jerusalem, Sodom, and Egypt, also where the Lord was crucified. Hang with me. I propose John was referring to the Jerusalem of his day, pre-70 AD. The whore of Babylon, the mother of harlots, the abomination of the earth, who drunken with the blood of the saints, they were killing off Christians, drunken with the martyr of Jesus, that's Jerusalem, and that great city whom found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all that were slain upon the earth. And when it says all, it's just talking about of that age, slain of the earth. Um, so to prove this assertion, let me look at those two words uh, where it's, John calls it, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Um, this was a figurative name describing Jerusalem's spiritual condition rather than an actual location. Letting the Bible support this, uh, go to Isaiah chapter one. It says, decla Isaiah declares a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah wrote, hear the words of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. That was talking about Jerusalem. It was talking about Israel. In Jeremiah 23, 14, because of the adulterous prophets, God said that Jerusalem and her inhabitants were, quote, all of them unto me as Sodom. So we have scriptural precedent that God himself and his prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, would refer to Jerusalem as Sodom. And so John, in the Revelation, he calls her Sodom, okay? Now, but what about the reference of Egypt? Nowhere in the Bible is Jerusalem called Egypt. This is where I could be guilty of reading into the text. But I would say, first-generation Jews, we're in an exodus out of Egypt. And I would say that the last-generation Jews were in an exodus out of the law into the arms of Christ. And so Egypt is always known as bondage. And Jerusalem was captive to the bondage of the former religion. And so John refers to them as Sodom, and he refers to them as Egypt. It's the best I can do in my way I see it as to why he would ever call Jerusalem Egypt. Now, of course, there are 10,000 other views, but this is the one to answer that. But I think we could have a fairly clear reference to Jerusalem of Sodom and Egypt being referred to in Revelation and the woman. And therefore, we have a predate of 70 because Jerusalem would have to be standing for him to make that association between those two places. Point number six is the best of the evidences. We've talked about this before. And we call this, make sure I'm not wrong, the seven kings. The seven kings evidence for the internal evidence for the dating of the book of Revelation. I've, I've, I've suggested that Revelation is a book revealing Jesus to first century Israel. And the last ditch chance. As we've seen the woman Jaw saw in the first century, and as I've suggested, Jerusalem called Sodom and Egypt. Then in Revelation 17.10 we read, John writes, 
and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. First of all, <clears throat> how many kings do we have in our day and age that we're gonna be referring to in the future? I mean, I, this has to have some place that is not today. And I'm not saying futurists use this today, but just try to put yourself in the mindset of what John was talking about. The kings spoken of here were the rulers of, I would suggest, John, the empire that John lived on in, in that day, the Roman Empire. And since the Jews had no king but Caesar, he is calling them the seven kings. These kings were not ruling at the same time. For as the text says, John writes, five of them fell, okay? Meaning that five of those kings had come and gone. And one is, John says, remember a letter going to the seven churches, and one is, uh, who, referring to the king who was ruling at the time that John was recording Revelation. As stated, this is where we have one of the clearest proofs, I think, for the dating of the book. If we simply examine the list of Roman emperors, we are able to determine who the sixth king was. Okay, so the first, one, two, three, four, and five, these are who were but have fallen. They're all dead. We have historically proven, we have Julius Caesar, Caesar, if you're stickler. We have Augustus. We have Tiberius. We have Gaius, also known as Caligula. And we have Claudius. When John wrote this, we can easily say that the five that are gone are those five. Okay? So, and the sixth emperor, the one who now, when he was writing, is Nero. Okay? <clears throat> when did Nero reign? Because John says, and the one who now is. So he had to have been reigning when John wrote this. He reigned from 54 AD to 68 AD. It's a, it's a big nail. It's a big nail for the preterist view to at least to establish that John was talking about then and there and what was happening. And he spoke in code and he spoke in different ways, which we'll see. Revelation 17.10 says, there are seven kings, five are fallen. We name them. One is Nero and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. So who was the seventh king who was not yet come, that, but when he comes, he will continue a short space? I won't write it. His name is Galba. And he would reign for six months. It fits exactly what John received from Christ in terms of revelation. Six months after the horrid Nero. Nero, the one who now is, did the most horrible things to Christians. And he and Peter, and uh, he is the one who had Peter, uh, Agrippa tried to do it, but he had uh, Peter and Paul put to death. Uh, God used him, I believe, to destroy Jerusalem. And it was Nero who was in power and gave command to Vespasian to destroy it completely. Uh, historically, Nero was the one that persecuted Christians beyond all comparison. If John was banished to Patmos, 
it was the result of the great persecution of Nero, if he was, because really that's something we read into and we'll get to that. Uh, he is undoubtedly the sixth king that now is mentioned in Revelation, proven beyond any doubt that Revelation, in my opinion, had to have been written before the Roman Jewish War. And that erodes all the Domitian uh, stuff and everything else. Oh, not everything else, but it erodes that statement. Point number seven, the uh, song of Moses. Who is it? Heidi probably has the best voice in here. Sing it for us, Heidi. What's the song of Moses? Oh, if there's any futurists in here, break out into it for us, will you? So we know how to sing it when, when he, he comes. <laughs> I'm such a smart Alec. It's a Jewish tradition, Revelation 15, 2, 3. Those who know the traditions, this will have meaning. It says that those martyrs who had come off victorious from the beast were singing the song of Moses. The first thing we have to ask is, if these martyrs spoken of here are us Christians living today, why aren't we singing and learning the song of Moses? Uh, then how does the song go? And where are the words found? And, you know, get ready. We got to get ready so we can sing it. Now, the song of Moses is found. This is fascinating in Deuteronomy chapter 32, if you want to read it. Verses 1 through 43. It's a long song. And the Jews were to sing this song to remind themselves of what would befall them in the latter days. That is why the Song of Moses was written. Deuteronomy 31, 29 will explain that to you, okay? The song specifically talks about their end, the end of Jews, Deuteronomy 31, 20. The details of their destruction, you ready? By verse 22, fire, verse 24, famine, verse 24, plague, and bitter destruction, verse 24. All about what is going to happen at the end of the age of the Jew. In it, God calls them a perverse generation, verse 5 and verse 20. He says he will render vengeance upon them and vindicate his faithful people. Vindicate them, verse 41 and 36 respectively. Why would Christian martyrs of the 21st century be singing this song? I'm not sure they will. But it makes sense so that those of the Jerusalem world who were new of Deuteronomy and knew of the song of Moses, who were waiting for Jesus to come and save them, and maybe even who were uh, wondering why they were being destroyed may have lamented by and through this song, and it fits. Okay, point eight. And you've heard me rail on and on about this, so I won't take too long, we're almost done. I'm just gonna call this soon. I think that's what I call it. There's something else I call it. Soon and seal. Okay, uh, as we pointed out, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of the old Bibles talk about it being John Revelation, like Jack White sings, John the Revelator, who wrote this, John the Revelator. Uh, but it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. We'll see that next week. Who tells John that the fulfillment of the prophecies in this book was soon. Right off the bat in, in chapter one, verse one, and, and in, in verse three, uh, John informs his readers, the seven churches of Asia, at verse 4, that the contents of the volume must shortly come to pass in the Greek. There's no play in that at all. There's none. 
It's not like shortly means 2,000 years. It means get ready, okay? The content of this book must shortly come to pass. Take note. John did not write that some of the events were going to come to pass. Even most of the events would shortly come to pass. He wrote all of the contents of the revelation would short, must shortly come to pass. Why? Why must those things shortly come to pass? Because Revelation uh, says the time is at hand. And in the Greek, that means right next to you. Okay? At hand for whom? We learn in the first chapter, the seven churches. We're going to get into this more next week. Specifically, to the church of the first century in general. The time for what was at hand? Ready? The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation. Him returning with judgment and reward. The revelation of Jesus Christ. As I've mentioned many times, the last chapter of Revelation. Now, as I said last week, partial preterists and full preterists draw a line between chapter uh, 18 and 19. Partial preterists say chapters 1 through 18 are all fulfilled. Chapters 19, 20, and 21 will be fulfilled in our day. Okay? So, but a full preterist says the whole thing that's described there has been fulfilled. All right? Notice in the last chapter of Revelation, uh, it begins at verse 6. The Lord, it's saying that the Lord sent his angel to John, ready, quote, to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. That includes everything written in chapters 19, 20, and 21. The things which must shortly be done. At the end of book of Revelation, Jesus through John reiterates the same message. It's going to happen quickly. Gives all the content and at the end he says, it's going to shortly occur. Have you ever noticed this? Again, this emphasizes all the events contained in the book of Revelation were about to take place in the first century, not stretched out throughout time, no gaps, no playing with time so that we can assign content to us. There's nothing there, beginning and end, bookends of the book say, it's at hand, it's gonna happen. But Jesus doesn't stop there with John in the last chapter. At verse 10, the angel of the Lord says to John, seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Again, right next to you, John. Don't seal this book. So what does that mean? This is another proof that the contents of Revelation were about to take place. The only historical event where the contents of Revelation could take place is the destruction of Jerusalem. Unless you want to assign it to World War II, or World War One, or something, and try to read into it that way. Unless you want to be Charles Manchin and take Revelation number nine and say the long-haired locusts were the Beatles. I mean, I don't know how far you want to go with it, but to me, a plain reading of Scripture says, look it, he said it's shortly going to happen, it's shortly going to happen, get ready, the time is at hand. So, and when it's fulfilled historically, we see everything fall out upon them. But another element was added to the warning. Do you recognize it? The angel told John this time, don't seal this book, all right? Why is this important? We have to go, we're almost done, to Daniel, all right? After Daniel had received visions concerning the nation of Israel, 
he was told, quote, thy people shall be delivered, everyone that shall be found written in the book, thy people, okay? We are not Daniel's people, okay? He says, your people. So he's talking about the end times here. Daniel's then told how they would be rescued by resurrection, some to eternal life and others to everlasting contempt. That's how Daniel, way before Jesus is ever born, says it, verse two of, of that chapter, okay? But then Daniel is told something really peculiar. In verse four, Daniel was told, quote, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. So Daniel's having a revelation from an angel, and the angel says, shut it up even to the time of the end. End of what? The world? Hardly. The end of the age of the Jew. That's who Daniel was speaking for, to the nation of Israel. We have to refuse the temptation to believe that when Daniel writes the time of the end, that's when the book should be sealed up till, with the end of time. That little switch is made by people who believe it's still coming. They'll say, see, Daniel was speaking of the end of the world, the end of all time. The Bible never talks about the end of the world, never. It talks about the end of the age, okay? And that is what Daniel is speaking of here. So this is speaking of the end of the Jewish nation. Daniel had a vision of it, and the, and the angel said, seal up that prophecy. He had a vision of when it would be the end of the temple, it'd be the end of the priesthood, be the end of the genealogies, it'd be the end of all of that, gone. Uh, next, Daniel saw two angels talking and the fulfillment of all, about all that he had seen, verse six, and he asked one of the angels, how long will it be till the end of these wonders? Okay, so he asked him a logical question. And the answer was, ready? When he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all things, all these things shall be finished. When he has the power to scatter all of these people. All right? Daniel 12, 7. But Daniel couldn't understand what that angel meant. And he said, when? And we'll read it when we get to it. And the angel said in reply, go your way, Daniel. Just like that. Go your way, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Sealed till the time of the end. Do you know the only other place in scripture where a sealed book is referred to? Do you know where it is? It's in Revelation chapter five, where the angel says to John, I saw, or John says, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within on the backside sealed with seven seals. John is talking about the same book. The reason this has direct bearing on Revelation 21 and 22, the last books of the book, is that Daniel was told to seal his book concerning the end, for it pertains to many days in the future. That's Daniel 8.26. But John was told not to seal his book because, Revelation 22.10, the time is at hand. So if you, if you want to try to extrapolate that out and just keep waiting for the time to be at hand, which means right next to you in the Greek, it's coming upon you. If you want to keep living that myth, go ahead. I hate myths. I hate fables. I want the truth. 
And that is what we get when we read it plainly through here and not try to add to it. The end of the old covenant Israel was at hand. The end of that world, of that age, all things written had to be fulfilled by the time Jerusalem, that age, that world, that temple, that priesthood, that genealogy would fall. Then speaking of timing again, Jesus says to John at verse 12, this is in the last chapter of Revelation, and behold, I come quickly. He reiterates it. I come quickly. The word, I'm coming, John. All right? And my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. All right? Notice that Jesus did not say, when I come, I come quickly. Most futurist interpreters of Revelation will add, he's saying when he comes. He doesn't say that. He says, I come, and in the Greek it means, I am almost here, John. All right? He said he's coming quickly, but he said something else. He said that his reward was with him to give every man according to his works. All right? Now, some state that hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for that to happen. However, we again have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And turn, I'm not going to read them, Matthew 16, 27, 28, Mark 8, 38, 91, Luke 9, 26, 27. Did you know that Jesus said the exact same thing in these three verses that he did in the last chapter of Revelation 21, 12? He says the exact same thing there because in those chapters, he's beginning to let the apostles know that this end is gonna come. It's gonna come. It's a way off, but it's gonna come. So again, in Revelation 21, he said that he was coming and he shall reward every man according to his works. And Jesus used the words in the gospels. But do you know what else? He said in those three examples I just gave you in Matthew 16, Mark 8, and Luke 9, you know what else he said there? He said, quote, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's letting scripture interpret scripture. That's letting the gospels give us how to interpret Revelation as we read through it. And we have it right there. It's amazing. Notice that Jesus tied his coming to the lives of some who were standing there. Futurists cannot explain that. It's impossible. They have to extrapolate it out through all kinds of mathematical gymnastics. Some of his listeners would not die or be dead until he came. So who was he coming to? Those alive within that generation. And what will be the reward? Daniel told us the rewards that he would be giving them. Daniel told us. Resurrected to everlasting life. Others resurrected to contempt. Daniel's the one who tells us what that reward is going to be. I'm beyond convinced that if we learn anything from this, we learn that the same thing awaits all human beings today. I am convinced that if we learn from the book of Revelation, combined with Daniel, combined to what Jesus does and says, that we live our life, we have for 1,940 years, followers of Christ, believers in faith, and when we die, we will receive the reward, a resurrection to life or a resurrection to death. It's one or the other. And the body that comes with it will be equipped by God according to his will and mercy, that scripture, given to every single believer when they die. And the, and the world keeps spinning. And God keeps bringing people out. Uh, okay, point nine, almost done. We mentioned this earlier, but to believe that Revelation was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, so point nine, destruction of Jerusalem is, it was so devastating that there would be some allusion to the destruction. That is a point that just logically you can't get away from. He's revealing what has happened. And in a very apocalyptic book that is threatening all sorts of horrible things, 
you would think, could be wrong, but you would think there would be some reference to what happened to the Jews at Jerusalem. Nothing makes me wonder. And then last point, if a person doesn't believe the first three verses in the book of Revelation, they'll believe anything. And so when we get to it next week, we're going to start off and we're going to read those first three verses. And just reading them should cause you to say, what have I been hearing all this time? What are we doing? So you could write first three verses at that point. It's of interest that the Syrian version of the book of Revelation first published in 1627 uh, afterwards in what's called the London Polyglot, if you want to look it up online. This is what the inscription says, quote, the revelation which God made to John the evangelist in the Isle of Patmos to which he was banished by Nero Caesar. Nero Caesar, Nero. The Syriac translation of it puts it right there at that time. And so uh, that places John's uh, hand to paper well before 70, even before 69 AD. Comments, questions? <sighs> Brother Adam. And you're mentioning how there was different. Uh, I, there's a, I know there's a difference between both of them because uh, you're mentioning about, you know, the time, and you're mentioning about the dates, and I don't know how that can, how that, uh, uh, you know, works. Because I know a lot of, you know, futurists will say, uh, uh, a lot of futurists will say. You know about how that about how because you're talking about ages and and seasons and times, but then the other thing is is uh, let me answer that first. By the time we get around to uh, right around the time of Christ, the question of time, which was back in Genesis, uh, Bishop of Usher is the guy who created the time frame, which gives old earthers and new earthers much to argue about. It's considered faulty today. But by the time Christ was born, we're looking at about a time frame differential today of wondering about four, four years, three to four years of difference. So it wasn't as big of an argument when I'm talking about days and ages out in 70 AD. Josephus is writing. We have a lot of historical records. Time was really set. So time doesn't really play much into Revelation in terms of when uh, the age was agreed upon. Well, and then the other thing that I was gonna say is, is because today, uh, how do I put it? Basically, you know, because I know that today, you know, everyone talks about how uh, how our, uh, you know, we're in these last days, but yet hasn't. How does it fit with how history has always repeated itself as well? Because it seems like the same things, you know, as, as I look out and, you know, whether it's on, you know, on, online or on YouTube, how different people will say that, you know, our, uh, we're, you know, history just keeps repeating itself over and over, how, you know, and how do you tie that with, 
the first question. The historists would use that and the idealists would use that in their interpretation of Revelation, that history does repeat itself. And what we have in Revelation are models, spiritual models that God is revealing to us to show us what's happening in the cycle of the Christian church and other things. So your point about history repeating itself does play into the way some people view the interpretation of the book. I mean, because today, I mean, right now in 2016, we're going through, you know, a big, huge presidential, you know, and I've listened to different videos where they've talked about how there's already an arch in New York now that's been put up and... You know, there's a lot of different things that's gone on. In New York, there's an arch of that that's supposed to be a represent a a replica of what you know something that has happened in the past. So you know, there's a oh, and I don't know. You're probably reading a lot of futurists. uh, Like I said uh, two weeks ago, the futurist reads Revelation with the newspaper in their hand. And when they see this, they equate it to that. And, and there maybe there are themes. Uh, you know, one thing that's clear is I, I'm not saying that uh, the world won't be wiped out by our, our own kind. I'm not saying that we're not going to end up killing ourselves. But I just believe that the contents of Revelation and the New Testament have been fulfilled and are done. So uh, there could be arcs and archetypes and different models that are out there. Maybe there's some truth to it, but I don't think they lead to... Uh, Jesus coming back to wipe out the earth and save his church. I think that that's what I think the preterist view says is done. Thanks, Adam. Brother Jonathan, nicest dresser in the house, except for Mark. So I uh, really like the message today. Oh, praise God. Very enlightening and interesting, intriguing to say the least. Um, so the when it comes to Nero being defined as the Antichrist, um, it reminded me of another verse in Revelation. uh, In chapter 13, verse 10, it reads, uh, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So Nero uh, killed a lot of Christians, obviously, in horrific ways, but Nero himself was killed by his own servant, by a sword. Mm, He actually commanded him to stab him when he knew that the Roman army was after Nero. Awesome. So Great insight, Jonathan. Thank you, my brother. Anybody else? Heidi wants to sing the song of Moses? No, she says no. All right. All right, let's pray and get out of here. Lord, we're grateful. Uh, We pray that you'll enlighten us and open up our eyes and minds. And uh, if we disagree with one another, let there be love between us. And uh, all people are accepted and welcome uh, to come in and out. Disagree if we will, but let us get along. We pray that you will uh, teach us the things, the errors I make will be forgotten. And uh, uh, that we will know you better. That's the goal, to know you better. And... uh, some way let this book help us to know you better and we pray for that we pray for those who uh are having difficulty we pray for our sister and her husband uh ruth and brent up in idaho that they will have peace being the only some of the only christian believers in their town and we pray that you'll strengthen them we pray for people having difficulty in their marriages 
difficulty with their children, difficulty with uh, being Christian in this faith, difficulty with embracing Mormonism and maybe not believing it, or whatever it is, whatever religious institution has us bound. We pray for people who don't believe that they're worthy to come to you because of sin. We pray you'll open up their eyes and help them realize that it's not their sin that keeps them from you, it's their lack of faith. And help them to look to you as the only source and let their tongue confess and their knee bow. Prepare us, Lord, for what you have for us. Open up our mind and our eyes. Help Heidi and, and the cancer and the radiation treatment she's having. Bless uh, Carlos and Jean and the trials that they're going through. Uh, we pray that militia doors will open up for her in whatever way she's seeking. And uh, just be with us now as we venture out into the world. Until we come together next week, if it's your will, in Jesus' name, amen. Of the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love.